overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. The word of the Lord. New Testament reading is from 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or, or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we are, are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in, a, in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my, father, my brother stumble. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You can have a seat. Um, before I begin today, I wanted to just briefly uh, to thank you, all of you, um, just for the love and support 
that my, myself and my family have received over the last couple weeks. Cards, emails, personal heartfelt greetings, hugs. It's been a real encouragement. So from Steph and Corey, Jack, and Wes, thank you. I also want to encourage you, though, and it's who you are, and I want you to encourage you in that, that you have been the body of Christ, and he is pleased. So thank you, and keep going. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the intricate story of your people. We thank you that we are a part of that by your grace. Pray that we would be able to learn a little bit more about that and be able to see the grand view from the top in this story. Amen. So I have to say that I don't know very much about architecture. Uh, having said that, there are a few names that I know about just from, you know, sort of life experience. So I love Frank Lloyd Wright's buildings. Um, my father used to love those. Uh, and he taught me a, a little bit about them, and I, I really love them. I also, having lived in uh, Chicago for a few years, I know the name Louis Sullivan. He was a famous, uh, involved in a lot of those early skyscrapers. Another name that I have actually come across a lot in my years is the name Mies van der Rohe. Now, I, I went and searched his name, and it turns out I've been to a couple of his buildings. He actually designed the Federal Center in Chicago with a red uh, sculpture in front of it. And I didn't even know that that was his building. I've visited it several times uh, and I've seen it. And he has this very distinct style. And, but interestingly enough, I, I didn't think of him because of any building that he had designed. I thought of him because of a famous quote that is attributed to him. Now he spoke German, but the best way we can translate it is, God is in the details. This idea helps whenever we look at God's word, of course, but it really seems to help me when we look at narrative. The completed work of narrative is a lot like a building. We know that there are beams, and beams of course came into our reading this morning, starkly, beams and rivets that are, that if you look close, you can see them, but they don't build anything on their own. But the pieces that are put make sense of a bigger story. They give it structure and form. And the big picture tells us a beautiful story. Ezra doesn't even show up in the book that's named after him until chapter 7. But the chapters that we're looking at give important context to his story and to Nehemiah's story. And it's a story that God has closely designed in his wisdom and providence. So the passage we read this morning from Ezra 6 is at the end of the portion that I'm covering today. It serves as a resolution to a drama that begins at the beginning of chapter 4 and goes all the way to here. Last week, Pastor Christian talked about chapter 3. There we saw the remarkable moment when the temple's foundation was laid after the return from exile. Now, coming up, there's some confusion about king's names and order of, of operations here. And I looked up a lot of timelines to look through. And Pastor Christian actually made reference to that in his sermon last weekend. Uh, but I'm just going to do my best to depict, especially chapter 4, as unconfusing as possible and focus on the bigger story. So in chapter 4, the temple faces opposition. The rebuild project faces opposition. After the foundation is laid, there's this group of people who lives in the land who interrupt the building project. And they ask Zerubbabel and Yeshua, 
both people who are, who are involved in the building of the temple to be involved. And Zerubbabel and Yeshua say, no, we don't want you involved. Go away, you're bothering us. And these people in the land then attempt to stop said building. Commentators, every commentator I read, agreed that these people, uh, were, these residents are Samaritans. And they begin to bribe local Persian officials to stop the building. And just as that action begins, there is a break in the narrative in verse 6. The action stops in verse 5 and then picks up in verse 24. And the author decides to give us two other stories of when the people in the land faced opposition in the building of the temple. One is briefly mentioned in verse 6 during the reign of Ahasuerus. And then the next is in verses 7 through 23 during the reign of a king named Artaxerxes. In this incident, the local Persian officials in Israel send a letter. Hey, these folks are troublemakers. You should stop them from their building. And the Persian king writes back, yeah, you know what? They are troublemakers. We even paid them tribute to some of their really powerful kings way back when. So the king orders that they stop building. <coughs> And before I move on to the action in chapter 5, I just want to remark on the fact that it's astounding to me that this little kingdom was giving trouble to the Persians. It's like, you have this small little kingdom that's just not any bigger than, I, I can't, I mean, Israel's about 300 miles from, from north to south, and they're giving trouble to one of the largest empires in existence. Remarkable. So after this interlude in verses 6 through 23, we arrive back in verse 24, with a hearkening back to verse 5. The adversaries of Judah have succeeded in delaying the building of the temple until the second year of Darius, king of Persia. Stop chapter 4. Chapter 5. It brings us to the next important chapter to this story in more ways than one. It reminds us of the ministries of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Their respective ministries, I think, have even more power when we see the kind of opposition that the people in Israel were facing. If you have a chance this week, check out Haggai, especially, it's only three chapters. Zechariah too, Zechariah is a little more confusing. But Haggai is only three chapters, and so you can see what's going on. And it's actually amazing that with this foreign king to whom they are subject, Haggai and, Zechari Haggai and Zechariah are telling the people, you need to keep building. A king has told them to stop. So Haggai and Zechariah call attention to the fact that they have a, a more important ruler to whom they are subject. So with great faith, Zerubbabel and Yeshua again begin to build the house of God that had been started in Ezra 3. And this causes concern again for the local Persian officials who don't want them building because of what the king had just commanded in chapter 4. So they again write to the current king of Persia, now it's a king by the name of Darius, and fill him in, in verses 7 through 17 of chapter 5. The people are rebuilding. There's a lot of work underway. We asked them, he's, they're saying this to King Darius, we asked them, who's allowing this? And they say, God. <laughs> God's allowing it. We have to do this because God's asking us to do it. So when they asked him for more, the people of Judah tell them, well, years ago, your king, King Cyrus, said that we could build this. So go check the files. <laughs> See if you can find this decree that, that, that Cyrus, Cyrus gave us. And Pastor Christian actually alluded this to this when he covered chapter 1 
a few weeks ago. The very first book of Ezra is this decree of Cyrus. I'm going to read it real quick. In the first year of Cyrus, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. And Pastor Christian mentioned that morning how important it would be that he put it in writing. And now we have the payoff for that today. The Jews building the temple asked King Darius, check the records and see if they can find it. And so now we arrive at our, our reading from this morning in chapter 6. Darius makes another decree. These kings are making decrees, you know. Go check the vault. This decree is probably about 20 to 30 years after the initial one of King Cyrus. And lo and behold, in one of the archives in the city of Ekbatana, in what is now western Iran, a scroll is found. And it's interesting to compare what we find in chapter 6, while we can compare it to what we see in the initial decree in chapter 1. The big idea is the same, let these people rebuild. But there are some different nuances in each account. In chapter 1, the order is given, and financial help for the returning exiles is given. Here, different details are given. The decree commands how large the temple is supposed to be, the height and the breadth of the building. The decree says that it will be paid from the royal treasury. And this is a remarkable provision. We don't know why or what is motivating King Darius. International politics are likely playing a role here. But I would also contend that providence is at work. One thing we can see quite consistently in all these, this literature associated with the exile and the return is God works through foreign kings. Since these kings are not the central focus of the story, the authors don't give us a lot of information, but it is fascinating to see the detail here in verse 5 that this king is giving back what was taken by Nebuchadnezzar. There's a repair, a certain repair that seems to be made here that goes beyond just letting the people go home. And there seems to be a recognition of their worship that goes beyond mere tolerance. Providence at work. Stealing a Pastor Christian, you're preaching next week, right? Yeah, stealing your thunder a bit from next week. In verse 22 of chapter 6, it actually says, The Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God. So in some ways, we don't have to speculate about whether or not God's work here, because he, the author just tells us that. And so moving on to verse 6 of chapter 6, he extends his decree further by invoking the names of local leaders. He tells them, let these people alone. Let them do their work. And look again at the provision, verses 8 through 10. Paying tribute to the province, what's called here the province beyond the river. And they say that because from the east, of course, the river, <laughs> Israel is a land beyond the river, whether it's the Jordan or the Euphrates, probably either one, but either one from their perspective, it's beyond the river. And all the supplies needed for sacrifices and worship are provided for. I realize that we live in a, 
a, a, a culture that is secular, and we don't really want government and uh, religion interfering with each other, and that's all well and good. But could you imagine, just from a financial standpoint, forget about some of the other bigger issues, if everything here was just provided for, no mortgage, no anything, again, forget about the strings attached. It's a remarkable provision. Wine, grain, bulls, rams, everything that they need to do their worship is provided for by King Darius. Verse 10, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven. So it goes beyond, well, let's just tolerate it, but that this king seems to be recognizing that there's a, a heart to this worship. But then, lest we get too sentimental, the last two verses of this reading show, do denote the seriousness with which the king sees this decree. The punishment in verse 11 that was read uh, by Cindy so well uh, actually was one of those kinds of punishments at the time that was reserved for conquered enemies. So the king is taking a very serious stance here about anyone who interferes with this people. And then verse 12, the last verse, reminds me of the way a lot of Supreme Court documents end. You know, it is so ordered. That's the way a lot of the Supreme Court documents ended. So here in verse 12, Darius has his own spin. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Robert Alter, a highly respected and regarded Hebrew scholar, translates it this way. I, Darius, have put forth a decree. Scrupulously shall it be done. So he's, he's serious here. What a remarkable letter. What world-altering events from this foreign king. And we don't know exactly all why he does this, but there's a beauty to the bigger story here that is very comforting. So I just covered two and a half chapters pretty quickly. It's a lot of interesting details in history, but I do think that there are a couple of principles that we, the people of God now in 2024, can keep in mind. A couple things. People of God, we face opposition. Two, we can be comforted that we are brought along into God's wonderful story. First, we face opposition. When we looked at the end of chapter three, Pastor Christian was, was showing just this outpouring of joy. It's such a high point. Foundations for the temple are laid. Songs are sung. Grown men are weeping. And things are so loud, nobody knows who's weeping, who's laughing. But then the author of Ezra immediately records the opposition found in chapter 4 and how that is overcome. Quick story. My wife and I are big fans of the band, the Avid Brothers. I don't know how many of you know them. Some years ago, we had the opportunity to go to an annual New Year's Eve concert in Greensboro, North Carolina. And it was like a big convention, one big arena full of Avid Brothers nerds, 20,000 of us. And stickers were being exchanged. Old friends were greeting each other. And the concert was unbelievable. They sang old favorites. They sang deep cuts. They sang covers everything you could want from a concert. And as the concert reached midnight, the sense of joy was, was palpable. The, the Avid brothers were joined by their families on stage to ring in the new year. Balloons began falling from the rafters. 
And we just couldn't help in that moment to think that this new year, 2020, would be so great. <laughs> From your laughter, I think you're picking up what I'm putting down. 2020 was not a great year. I, along with many of you, faced a ton of opposition that year. And it seems so often that way, doesn't it? That we face opposition when things are going really well. Just when things are going well, things seem to, to, to surprise you. In the context here in Ezra, the people of God end up facing opposition just when they're doing God's work, just when things seem to be going well. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The people of God faced trials here in Ezra, and God used prophets, foreign kings, and the basic obedience of his people to bring about his purposes. Don't be surprised when you encounter opposition. When you do, pray, go to his word, and do the next faithful thing. It might feel confusing. You might not even be sure what that next best thing is. Hide his word in your heart. Pray and follow him. Second, remember the wonderful story that God is telling when you read a passage like this. God is in the details, as Vanderoe said. This story has some unlikely twists and turns. But it also gives us a privileged view of what God is doing. We as people are not given this view under the sun. The privilege of having God's word is to see the bigger picture. There are many lovely parts of this story, but there's an unlikely beauty as well. The story of the Jewish people's progress is wonderful, as we have pointed out. But I want to close my thoughts by highlighting one particular thread seen here in Ezra. It's a thread which ends up being a part of this glorious story of Scripture. The people of God in Jerusalem were met by, with opposition by what Ezra 4.4 calls people of the land. Among those enemies were a band of people called the Samaritans. That little piece of information ends up being so significant. For while the Samaritans are such troublemakers here, if we pull back our view, they become an integral part of God's story. In our passage today, chapter 4 begins by saying that they want help to build the temple. They want to help build the temple before Zerubbabel and Yeshua ward them off. They become such hated enemies by the Jewish people that as years of separation continue to polarize them, Years later, when another Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth, comes to the land, the Jews would not even travel through their territory. But Jesus deliberately traveled through their land in John 4, and there we see him having a vital interaction with an unnamed woman at a well. And while she's unnamed, we are told two things about her, a couple things. Well, we're told more than that, but there are two important things that we are told. First, we know that she is a Samaritan, and also, we know that the location of the worship center is close to her heart, just like those who opposed Yeshua and Zerubbabel so many years before. Jesus also used a fictional Samaritan as a way to weave a brilliant story of how to best love our neighbors. 
And when Jesus is giving his final instructions to his 11 in Acts 1, he tells them they will be his witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria. As we see these Samaritans making trouble at the temple site, we can remember God's bigger work. He had a plan for those people, even though they attacked his covenant people. We just don't know what God is doing in the lives of those who oppose us. His story, though unseen, is beautiful. As we look at these events in Ezra, we can look back to Jerusalem as a place of God's work for the people in Ezra's era. We can also look to Jerusalem as the place of God's work for all of us at the cross. God gives us glimpses in his word. And while we don't know why or how he works in our lives, since we haven't been given that privilege, he gives us his word and his story to show that he is intricately involved. He did it then, he's doing it now. Let's pray. God in heaven, we do thank you that you are so involved with us and you love us so much and you know the details of our lives. Even when we are confused, troubled, when we don't know what to do, when we are crying out to you in despair, when it feels like you've left us. Help us to remember your story. Help us to remember all those beautiful details where we're shown that you are at work. And help us to remember your supreme loving gesture at the cross in Jerusalem. In the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen.